Our opening scripture this morning is the uh, eighth chapter out of 1 Samuel. And it reads, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Will you pray with me? Father, you are our king. You're our king, and we praise you that you rule the cosmos with justice and also unbelievable grace to each one of us. We confess that we often struggle to submit to your authority, placing our own desires above yours. We look forward to the day when all will bend the knee to their rightful king, whether we do so voluntarily as faithful servants, or as stubborn rebels who are compelled to their knees by your greatness and majesty. It's in the awesome name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn it to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking and covering chapters 9 and 10 this morning. Have you ever had high expectations for something, and then it turned out to be a massive disappointment? When I was in the sixth grade, I was pretty obsessed with basketball, and I saw these shoes in a magazine that could guarantee to make you jump higher. The goal was to be able to dunk. They had this big platform like this on the front half of the shoe so that your heel was always off the ground, and the idea was that your calves would get stronger, you'd be able to jump higher, and before long, you'd be able to dunk. At least that's how my sixth grade brain thought about it. I wore them one time, and that was enough. After playing ball for two hours in the park, I literally could not walk the next week. My calves would cramp. It felt like every muscle was torn. I had shin splints. It was horrible. Massive disappointment after high expectations. For those of you wondering, I ended up being a great dunker in another life. It was in another life. Another time, it was the same year, sixth grade was rough for me, my buddy got something called a hitaway. He was bragging about it nonstop, and it improved your hitting in baseball. I didn't even play baseball. Some of you that play church league softball know exactly what I'm talking about. So this was for him, not for me. The ball itself has a rubber bracket. It's connected by two rubber lines. You put it on a pole, you hit the hitaway, it wraps around the pole, comes back around, you can keep hitting it. You never have to chase a ball. That's the idea. So he's excited, he gets me excited, he gives me the bat, I kid you not, first swing, I hit it as hard as I can, I miss the ball, I hit the rubber, I'm holding on to the bat, it bounces off the rubber, comes back, hits me in the eye, huge black eye at school all week. High expectations, followed by massive disappointment. And while those are silly examples, this happens all the time in life, especially life in a fallen world. We have high expectations for a car that we buy, only to have to put $2,000 more into it the first three months in repairs. 
We have high expectations for a job, only for it to feel like we aren't appreciated or valued for the work that we do. This can happen in interpersonal relationships as well, from our interactions with friends or spouses or kids. We're expecting one thing, and then we are let down instead. High expectations followed by massive disappointment. As we turn to 1 Samuel 9 and 10 today, that is what we are going to see. High expectations followed by massive disappointment in the coming weeks. But I want us to keep uh, God's word from our scripture reading, what Michael read for us from chapter 8, in the back of our minds. God says that the people have ultimately rejected him. And he warns them about what a king will do. Yet God is merciful. He will provide the king that they want. A king that the people desire so that they can be like the surrounding nations. They have high expectations for this king. But as we will see in the coming weeks, these expectations that the people have will end in massive disappointment. 1 Samuel 9 is where we're starting out. I have four things for us to consider from these two chapters this morning. If you're taking notes, there's a broad outline provided in the bulletin, and I'll give you the four points up front. The first is the right appearance. Second is an underlying providence. Third is the prophesied king. And fourth is a foretaste of what is to come. I hope to provide application in each of these points. Would you briefly pray with me? Father, help us to sit under your word and not above it. Would you, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts and our minds? It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. First is the right appearance. Look with me at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Flip over to the end of chapter 10, looking at verse 23. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. The people demand a king in chapter 8. And the Lord is going to provide one. But a couple of things to note. At the end of chapter 8, if you look at the last couple of verses, Samuel directs all the men to return to their cities. And at this point, you would be thinking, okay, we're going to hear about how this man was chosen from all the cities, much like we see starting in chapter 10, verse 17. But no, chapter 9 is an excursus. It's the backstory of Saul and how he was appointed and chosen by God. And we see the personal story first before the public coronation. And it's kind of surprising about how it starts out. All of you go to your cities, he says, at the end of chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, there was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, who had a son, and he was an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive. The idea is physically here among the Israelites. He's a head taller than anyone else. He would have been, probably been voted Mr. Israel. Probably the starting center for the basketball team, probably able to dunk without those shoes. You get the idea. Israel wants a king like the nations, a king to lead and fight their battles, and the Lord's going to give them such a person, the person that looks the part, the person that when the Israelites see him, they automatically think, yes, that's our king. That's who we want. Remember the backdrop here, chapter 8. Keep that in your mind. A rejection of Yahweh's clear leading and kingship for a king like the nations. 
And then a repeated theme that we've seen so far in Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel as well is that when we reject God, when in our sin we desire something other than him, he warns us, yes, but typically he gives us what we want. He gives us over to that desire. Romans 1 ends up being true. And so Yahweh is merciful in these two chapters in his dealings with Israel, but he's also teaching them. There is some judgment in here as well. This tall king... This physically impressive person that you hope will be your saving grace, this one who has the right appearance and looks the part, watch what happens in the coming chapters when you put your hope in him instead of in me. Learn, Israel, and by extension, he's telling us the same. Allow me to remind us of what is coming in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the description of David. And notice here even Samuel the prophet's temptation. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Friends, if we're being honest with ourselves and with one another, we at times are often so like Israel here, it's appalling. We are so quick to judge based on looks, so quick to want the right appearance for ourselves and others that we can automatically label someone completely by how they look. Like the Israelites looking at the handsome Saul, we can desire friends that have a certain look. We can have our, our, desire our leaders to have a certain look. Even in our hiring practices, we go for a certain look. We can so quickly focus on the outside that we fail to get to notice the inside. Don't do that. My sweet daughter, Blakely, is only six, but I can already notice some of the trappings that plague women today. A focus on external beauty on how to dress up and put on makeup. And so she sometimes gets lip gloss. She ain't wearing makeup anytime soon. Sorry, Blake. <laughs> but in trying to cultivate this little heart, I'm constantly reminding her. Laura's constantly reminding her of godly beauty. And so I ask her, Blakely, what is beautiful is not just on the outside, but where? On the inside, Daddy. She'll answer that. So we're trying to teach her time and time again, beauty is found on the inside, although everything our culture would want to tell her and want to advertise to her is that it's found on the outside. Same thing in providing counseling to young people who are looking to get married. They're dating, they're wanting to go through the next step. Why do you like him? Why do you like her? Young people, listen to me. (laughs) If your sole basis of criteria is based on appearance. And I'm not saying there's not a place for physical attraction. There definitely is. But if your sole basis is, quote, unquote, how hot he or she is, <laughs> friend, you are nowhere near ready to be married. You don't know what's coming. Proverbs 31.30 is applicable to both ways. Charm is deceptive. Beauty, handsomeness is fleeting. But a woman or man who fears the Lord is to be praised. Look for that. Pursue that. Let us guard against judging solely on appearance. I recognize that in our Western culture in America, this is like swimming upstream where appearances are just hammered into us nonstop via advertising and social media where everyone has the right appearance. But friends, Christians should be different. Christians are different. Embrace the difference. Think even of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it in two ways. Think of his dealings with others, his interactions with others, and then think of the description of himself. 
First, in his dealings with others, he was constantly hanging out with those who were known as sinful, with sinners, those who were clearly not up to the right appearance like the Pharisees wanted. He could eat with a prostitute or a tax collector and associate with the disciples all the same. He looked at the heart. But even further, think of his own appearance. Friends, Jesus, no matter modern depictions, Jesus did not have the right appearance. Jesus did not have the right appearance. Israel wanted a king with the right appearance here, and the Jews in Jesus' day wanted a king that would lead them out from Rome's captivity, someone to deliver them. But remember the description of Jesus in Isaiah 53? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was sickly. He was like someone people turned away from. Every single person in here knows exactly what that's like. Someone asking you for money, begging on the corner, you make eye contact, you look away. Someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. The Lord looks at the heart. May we learn to do the same. That brings us to our second point, an underlying providence. An underlying providence. Underlying all of chapters 9 through 10 is really the, and really the entirety of the scriptures is God's providence, his meticulous providence. There is nothing outside of his control. Using Jeff's definition from last week, providence is God's continuous, purposeful control and care over all creation, orchestrating everything, events, people, and circumstances to ultimately bring the praise of his glory through a redeemed people. Jeff likes to write, okay? Notice here how this providence shows itself. Notice here. First, it shows itself to Saul, and then it's going to show itself to Samuel. We're going to read a larger section of our story today, and I want you to understand the big picture of what's happening in God's providence. I'll tie it together for us at the end. Look with me in chapter 9, starting in verse 3. One day, one day the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his servant went throughout the hill country of Ephraim and then through the region of Shalisha, but they didn't find them. They went through the region of Shalim, nothing. Then they went through the Benjaminite region, but still didn't find them. When they came to the land of Zeus, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come on, let's go back or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Look, the servant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Well, suppose we do go, Saul said to his servant. What do we take the man? The food from our packs is gone, and there's no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us which way we should go. Formerly in Israel, a man who was going to inquire of God would say, Come, let's go to the seer, for the prophet of today was formerly called the seer. Good, Saul replied to his servant. Come on, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they were climbing the hill to the city, they found some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked, is the seer here? Verse 12, the woman answered, yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can eat. Go up immediately, you can find him now. So they went up toward the city. Saul and his servant were entering the city when they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way. 
to the high place. Let's pause right here at verse 14. In a wonderful, strange, mysterious way, Saul will be guided by God's providence to be the first king of Israel. Saul goes looking for some donkeys that have wandered off. You and I don't think much of donkeys, but this is vital to farm life. It's worth some money. Surely he's asking them as he's going to all these regions, have you seen these donkeys? And the servant and him are just traveling throughout the hill country, and then they decide to ask the seer where the donkeys are, and the servant just happens to have the silver to do so. All just ordinary things from Saul's perspective that bring him to the man of God, Samuel. Look with me now at verse 15 from Samuel's perspective. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people, for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man I told you about. He will govern my people. Verses 15 through 17, I can't uh, understate the importance of those verses. They show us that all of Saul's wanderings had a purpose. It is providentially guided. Saul thinks he's just chasing after donkeys wherever they have gone, and yet the Lord tells Samuel, I will bring you the man. He is giving the people what they want. He's bringing them their king. Even further, Samuel is directed by God on how to find the king. This is a purposeful sovereignty as God accomplishes his will. Saul thinks he's just wandering along to his own tune. All the while, he's wandering along to the Lord's tune. If you're ever like me, you can wonder, is God's providence, this sovereignty that I'm describing, is it just for these people that we read about in Scripture? Is it restricted to the big people, the Moseses, the Davids, the Abrahams, the Marys, the Pauls, and the rest? Does God's providence affect my day-to-day life? The answer, biblically, is a resounding yes. Yes, it does. Friends, everything that you have experienced in this life and everything that you will experience in this life is under God's providence. It does not mean he is the author of sin or evil in any sense, but from your sufferings and your sicknesses to your moving around to you being here this very Sunday morning, it is under the providence of God. There are so many verses that speak about this in Scripture. Let me just provide a few. Remember Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in Egypt? Genesis 45, 5. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was in an Egyptian prison for years. God sent him ahead of him. Daniel 34, verses 4b through 5. This is a praise given from a pagan king after he experienced God's power and his providence firsthand. One of my favorite praises in all the Bible Nebuchadnezzar says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Wisdom tells us as well, Proverbs 16, a person's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 20, even a courageous person's steps are determined by the Lord, so how can anyone understand his own way? Even our Lord Jesus, in teaching his disciples and us and how to trust him, he's sending out his disciples here in Matthew, he's sending them out, they're nervous about the persecution that's going to come. 
What does he say to them? Matthew 10, verse 29. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. He's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If a sparrow doesn't die without God's consent, then how could you, my disciple? Why are you fearing? And then verse 30, a personal favorite, but even the hairs of your head have all been counted. And all God's bald people said, Amen. (laughs) All joking aside here, friends, our God knows the future. He has a plan. He's working out all things according to that plan. You and I, as followers of Christ and as a part of his creation, are included in that plan. Your entire salvation and your entire story are under his providence. And I want to say this here clearly. Divine providence is an assurance to us as Christians. Divine providence is an assurance. Oftentimes we get so caught up on how much does God know? What does he actually, uh, what is he actually in charge of? We can get into these debates nonstop, but that's not the point of it in the scriptures. It is a balm to the soul. It's an encouragement in a world of vast confusion. It is meant to spur you on in your faith by making you trust in God all the more. And you have to trust in God all the more because we are finite and we don't know what's coming. Yet he does. Saul had no idea in his wanderings what was coming. The dude was just chasing some donkeys. You, friend, have no idea what tomorrow holds. God doesn't always let us see the light of his providence during the nights that we experience. We don't always know what's going to happen behind the curtain, but he calls on us, he calls on you to have faith, to trust him. His providence spurs us on by pointing us time and time again to the reality that we don't know. We don't have all the answers, but God does. Have faith. Trust in him. Trust that he's working out all things for your good and his glory. And friends, trust that his providence is a good thing. Notice with me once more in verse 16 of chapter 9. He says in this description of the coming king, he said, he will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. Even in the midst of rejecting him, even in the midst of rejecting him as king, our God is merciful. He's merciful. He pities his people. And friend, do not think that he is not merciful to you. His divine providence is a good thing. Point number three, three, the prophesied king the prophesied king. At the end of chapter 9 and through chapter 10, verse 16, a large chunk here, we have the anointing and the prophecy of Saul as king. And this is done privately with a smaller group, and then it's done at the end of chapter 10, we'll come to see in uh, point number 4, with a public anointing. So let me just summarize these verses for us. At, towards the end of chapter 9, Saul, or excuse me, Samuel directs Saul to sit at the head of the table. He gives him the choice cut of meat, and then he commissions him before he goes on his way. And then Samuel, in the first eight verses of chapter 10, if you're looking down at the scriptures, he reveals the word of the Lord to Saul. He tells him all these signs that will accompany him as a means of proving to Saul that he is God's chosen king. Look with me in those first few verses. I'm just going to summarize here. He says, when he leaves here, he will find two men at Rachel's grave that will say that the donkeys have been found, praise the Lord, and now his father is worried about him. He will leave there and find three men traveling that will give him two loaves of bread. After that, he will come to Gibeah and see a group of prophets prophesying, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon Saul, and he will prophesy. 
And then we pick up in verse 9. Look with me, chapter 10, verse 9. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. I think a better translation is a changed man. I don't think this is salvation language here. It's not the same language that's used of circumcision of the heart elsewhere in the Old Testament. But I think that he's a changed man. He's coming to embrace the kingship. So God changed his heart and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man who was from there asked him, Who is their father? As a result, is Saul also among the prophets became a popular saying. Then Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. Saul here is anointed as king of the people, as I said, in more of a private ceremony. And this comes about with the spirit coming upon him, and then he prophesies. So briefly here, I want to talk about the nature of prophecy. The anointing is happening privately, and we'll look more at the public coronation in point number four, but I want to talk here briefly about the nature of prophecy. Notice how it is specific. Notice how descriptive it is. Two men, a father that is worried, three men traveling, two loaves of bread, prophets prophesying. When the Lord speaks, it is clear and ordered and specific. This is the nature of prophecy in the Bible. Our God is not a God of confusion. So biblical prophecy, friends, is not like the bland generalizations that you get on a fortune cookie. Instead, it is divine revelation that points to and proves God's providence. It is God-given. It is to show clearly to Saul that the Lord is at work in his anointing. And this prophecy is showing that. So we have to see that in the text. You have to see that. But today, there are many who claim to have revelations or prophecies from the Lord. And friends, it is never like this. Now, I admit some of this can be a semantics issue. I want to acknowledge that. What one person means by they heard something from the Lord, someone else can take a whole host of various ways. That's why we need to be specific in how we talk about the Spirit and understanding of what biblical prophecy is. But these people who call themselves prophet so-and-so or apostle so-and-so and and are just offering up these fortune cookie prophecies, that's not biblical prophecy. That's not what we see here in the text. And so when they do it, notice how it's never specific. It's always vague. Oh, the Spirit is telling me that someone in here has back pain. (laughs) Friends, I would venture to say that most of us woke up this morning with back pain. The Spirit is telling me that someone is hurt deeply in their heart. Well, the Christian life doesn't absolve us from suffering. Of course, we're going to have uh, hurts and works hurts that we are working through. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the Spirit. Hear me here clear. I'm not trying to downplay the Spirit, but instead I'm trying to teach us according to God's Word. Be wary of everything being called prophecy today when it isn't. The office of prophet has ceased. The act of prophecy in the church, I understand, to be picked up in the task of preaching. And so, of course, the Lord through His Spirit can give... Hear me here clearly. The Lord through His Spirit can give impressions. He guides us. He's our helper. He even directs us in our evangelism. But that's not prophecy like we see here in 1 Samuel 10. That's just simply the Spirit at work in the life of a Christian. That's normal stuff. So be wary of everything being called prophecy today. 
This side of the cross, as I said, the preaching of God's word is the closest correlation to prophecy. And I would argue we even see that here in the text. Look with me here. The spirit and the word always go together. The spirit and the word always go together. After the prophecy, Samuel even tells Saul in verse 8 to wait on him, and he will still tell him what to do. So here you have Saul the king, who has promised Yahweh's power, is told to submit to Samuel the prophet, who brings Yahweh's word. Spirit and word going together, never divorced. Be very wary of those who want the spirit, but no word who want the power of the Spirit, the signs of the Spirit, the giftings of the Spirit, they have little enthusiasm for common obedience to God's Word. And the opposite, friends, is true. Those so puffed up in their head knowledge that the power of the gospel is not at work in their heart and the fruit of the Spirit is not evidence at all in their lives. We must see how the Word and Spirit go together. We must see this prophecy surrounding Saul's anointing. So Saul here is anointed as king, the one set apart to lead God's people, the one that the Lord provides them in the midst of their rejection of him. And so in Saul, in this story, I think we see both mercy and judgment. And we're going to see that in the coming chapters. This brings us to our last point, point number four, a foretaste of what is to come. A foretaste of what is to come. In this story, we have hints to how Saul will really be as a king. We have a foretaste of what is to come. And so what I'm going to do here is just slightly different. But I want to draw your attention to some of the things in the text that I think that the biblical writer of 1 Samuel is trying to teach the readers, that they would have been picking up on. He's trying to teach us some biblical theology. He's trying to give us a foretaste, a forecast of what is to come. So let me just list some of these things for us. At the end of chapter 8, as I said, we have everyone sent to their own towns after asking for a king. One would think that then we would pick up in chapter 10, verse 17, next, and the Lord is selecting Saul through lots, through all the various tribes. But no, as I said, we have this excursus, and we are introduced to Saul as he is searching for some donkeys. And then he can never find those donkeys. As one theologian titled this section, Lost Asses Found Kingdom. Here we are introduced to a man just searching for donkeys, and he can never find them. Notice all the places that he's wandering around, all these different regions. Yes, under the providence of God, as I said, but still just a man who will be king, yet can't find the donkeys. Further, he's unprepared to hear from the seer. He has no money to give the prophet. He has to rely on his servant who has a little bit of silver for him. These are clues that the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to pick up on. Another is that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember your Bible, you know that two things stand out from this. First, in Joseph's prophecy over his sons at the end of Genesis, Benjamin is not spoken kindly of. In fact, it is Judah that he says that the scepter shall never depart from. Judah is where they should be expecting a king from, not Benjamin. The astute biblical reader is wondering why. And then second, when we left Benjamin at the end of Judges, if you remember from our series, we left with a horrible taste in our mouth. At the end of Judges, it is the tribe of Benjamin in Gibeah that rapes a concubine all night. And eventually, the rest of Israel makes war against Benjamin and almost wipes them out completely. This is who Saul, the king, comes from. 
Then, in the middle of chapter 10, in verse 16, we have Saul not telling his uncle everything. He says, yes, the donkeys were found, but no mention of the kingship. He withholds information from his family. Then, notice his public selection and coronation. 1 Samuel 10, verses 20 to 24. Again, details that the writer wants us to pick up on. Starting in verse 20. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, there he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. What is this new king doing? He's hiding. Although God had shown him through the prophecy and the signs that came about through Samuel's words that he is the king, he's hiding when his time has come such that the Lord is the one that has to find him for the people. There he is, hidden among the supplies. He's the tallest man around. He has the right appearance. Yet the text says, there he is, crouched among the supplies and hiding. The author of 1 Samuel is giving us hint after hint about what is to come. Even Samuel's parting words here to the people, do you see the one that the Lord has chosen? Well, they couldn't see him at first. He's crouched down. He's hiding. But now they see him, head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a giant among Israel. Yet what will happen when Goliath comes, the giant of the Philistines? There he is hiding in the tent. No, he's not the king. He's not the true king that is to be expected. I titled the sermon this morning, Finding a King for the People for a Very Particular Reason. Thirteen times in the Hebrew, in these two chapters, the word find or found is used. There is a search taking place. Saul was looking for donkeys. He was looking for the prophet. Yet as the people were looking for him, he was nowhere to be found, such that the Lord had to find him. Saul is a king for the people that the Lord provides, yes, but he will still be found lacking in his kingship as time goes on. Even in how chapter 10 ends, if you looked at the last couple verses, it hints that not all of Israel supported him. Division amongst the people is coming. Those are all the negative aspects all the hints that he wants us to see. But there's one positive. There's one positive, subtle aspect. If you look with me at chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, Samuel sits Saul down at the head of the table, and he gives him the thigh and what is attached to it. From the law, we know that this was reserved for the priest. He gives him the portion reserved for the priest. The narrator is telling us God and his divine providence is forecasting to Israel and to us what we are to look forward to. A prophet a priest, a king, one who can fulfill all three roles. No, in this one grand storyline, this all is pointing forward to the coming Messiah. That's how 1 Samuel is functioning in the Bible. Yes, it records the Saul becoming the first king of Israel, eventually David, even a man after God's own art, but even not him, even not he, is the Messiah that the people need. All of it is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who as our great prophet, is the greater Moses for us, and is truly the word of God made flesh. As our priest, he offers a sacrifice once and for all time, a sacrifice not to be repeated, and he intercedes for us each and every day. And as our king, 
He calls us to trust him, to obey him, and to follow him. The people here reject God as king, and they want a king like the nations. They reject God, and at the end of chapter 10, we see some of them reject his king. And so the question is being begged throughout this book, what kind of king will the people get? Will they ever have a perfect one? Friends, God in his grace and in his providence, as I talked about earlier, in his divine providence, we know this king. We know and we live on this side of the cross. We know who this perfect king is. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as Messiah, as your king, as your Lord and Savior, as the perfect prophet, priest, king that all of this story and all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to, I invite you to do as the book of Hebrews says and consider him. Consider Jesus Christ this morning. You need a king. That's the reality of it. You need a king. God, through his word, tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Naturally, in and of ourselves, in our sin, we love ourselves more than we love our creator. We want to be our own rulers. We do not want a king over our lives. And friends, the reality is you need a king. Look to him. Look to him. He is our king. And thankfully, he is not one that hides like Saul. But rather, he leads by dying for you, by sacrificing himself for you. He is worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your allegiance and your trust. And so he calls on you and all of us to repent of our sins and to turn to him, to turn to him in faith, to trust him, to trust that what he did and who he is is enough. I pray that you would do that here this morning. Would you consider your king? Let us pray. Father, we as your people are gathered here as your church, and Father, we are grateful to you, a God who has not left us to our own devices and to stumble around and try to find our own way, but a God who has revealed himself through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we look at this story of Saul and the selection of him and the anointing of him as king, Father, let us not lose the big picture in the midst of the details. Father, help us to trust in your divine providence. Help us to trust that you are in control, and day by day we are faithfully looking to you. God, help us to guard our hearts against the constant need to have the right appearance or to even desire that in others. Let us learn from Jesus. And Father, we are thankful for the foretaste that is to come. We are thankful that we, in your divine providence, live on this side of the cross, and we can look back on our one and true King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.